Well, um, this has been quite a week in our country, has it not? Um, in fact, I think most of us would agree that we haven't had a week like this since that week in September back in 2001, September 11th that week. Um, I don't think there are many who would uh, say that it was just kind of business as usual this week. In, in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombings, you heard a lot of people saying things like, it's just despicable when evil people perpetrate such things upon innocent, good and innocent, decent people. And I think, you know, we have to understand that heart. We all agree with that. But think about those kinds of comments in light of the gospel. No doubt the actions of the terrorist were evil. No doubt they were in evil people, although many people in the world would think the roles were exactly reversed. Good and godly people serving Allah have brought this destruction on those who deserve the kind of pain it was inflicted on them. Preposterous, you would say. And I would agree with that. But we need to be very careful how we think and what we articulate about good and evil in light of the gospel. Once again, there's no question that these bombs were an act of evil against people who did nothing to deserve the particular horrors that were unleashed on them this past Monday, but divided the world into good and bad people can be misleading because it leads to the belief, to the common belief and misconception that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Such beliefs, as compelling as they are, are contrary to the gospel. It's not what the gospel teaches us. It's not well with my soul because I've been a good person. Because I am a good and decent person. What is the gospel? Well, here's the definition that we developed uh, prayerfully and very thoughtfully developed a few years ago when we were going, took a quick trip through the gospel or through the book of Romans. I, I could say the gospel of Romans. The gospel is very clearly articulated in Romans. The just and gracious God of the universe, in response to hopelessly sinful people, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we can't, that we're incapable of living. To bear his wrath against sin on the cross, wrath that, that, that we should have borne. And to show his power over sin in the resurrection. So that all who respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe in Jesus will be reconciled to God forever. Now, this definition is based on what the Bible teaches us about the gospel. It's taken from the entirety of scripture, but particularly from the New Testament. Which, when you think about it, is simply an explanation of the Old Testament with Jesus in the picture. I mean, you will be stunned when you start really studying the New Testament to realize how many Old Testament verses are quoted verbatim and how much um, allusion is made to, to, to Old Testament verses, even if it's not quoted word for word. By the way, I, I really don't have time to explain this, so I, I shouldn't even say it, but I'll, I'll just go in there. For those of you 
who have, you know, you've tried to compare the New Testament uh, uh, quotations of Old Testament verses, and you see that there's a little bit difference. The reason is because the, the New Testament writers are quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So instead of going from Hebrew to Greek to English, they go from Hebrew to, excuse me, from Hebrew to English, they go from Hebrew to Greek to English. So that's why there's a little bit of, uh, uh, of difference there. But over and over, the Old Testament is just explaining, or the New Testament is explaining the Old Testament with Jesus. Um, the Bible is the story of two covenants, Old Covenant, New Covenant, law and grace. But it's one story. The gospel story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, is seen from Genesis to Revelation. So let's think about the events of this past week in light of the gospel. First, the sovereign God who is in control of all people and over all events in nature and in, in society and caused by humans. That sovereign God is the just and gracious God of the universe. He is creator and he is control he's in control of everything. The gospel or the good news of Jesus is God's response to the spiritual condition of hopelessly sinful people, lost and hopelessly <coughs> sinful people. Now the biblical definition of hopelessly sinful people is not restricted to terrorists, criminals and misanthropes. I mean, it goes well beyond that. Indeed, all men and women are separated of God from God because of the sin that, that's, that, that comes between us and the Lord, the sin that we inherited from Adam. Romans 3 goes so far quoting the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, and it goes so far as to say that there are no innocent people, that there is none who seeks after God, and that there is not one single person who does good. So what was God's response to such depravity, to such hopelessness? He sent his son, Jesus, to live that life we were incapable of living. Or in other words, to fulfill every single point of the law. He kept the law completely, fully, perfectly. And then he died the death that we should have died, bearing the wrath of God that is, that is directed not only against sin, but against sinners, He took our place, paying the punishment for our sin. And God showed that he accepted Jesus' payment by raising him from the dead. And when we respond to the Holy Spirit's call to us to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus, then we become his child forever. Do you see the problem of simply dividing the world into good and bad people? Now, now don't misunderstand me. I am very conservative politically. And if you'd have been in my house this week, you would have heard, you know, some of the same kinds of things that everybody else is saying. I believe that what happened was awful this past week. But when we just think in terms of good and bad, we get in trouble. One of the interesting points of discussion this past week was how nice the young man 
who set, uh, the men were who set the bombs, especially the, the younger ones, Zokar, Zaranev, Naev, I shouldn't have even tried that. That guy, you know, the younger one, the, the 19-year-old. <clears throat> and, and how shocked acquaintances were. You know, they interviewed him and they said, you know, he's just like everybody else. I mean, he partied, he wrestled on the team, he, he was doing all of these things. I can't believe he did it. I, I watched an interview where a reporter was speaking with a former FBI uh, agent who had a great deal to do with counterterrorism. And, and she said, well, what about this? I mean, how, how could such a nice young man turn so evil? And he said, look, everybody, you see this over and over. I mean, Ted Bundy, everybody said was the nicest guy in the world, and yet he was a serial killer, a murderer. We all tend to compartmentalize our lives. In other words, we're not who we appear to be. We may project one thing, but we may be something entirely else in private. In fact, we can shock ourselves, and we do, on a consistent basis, saying, I never believed I could do that. How, could I, how, did, how, did, how did that happen? I'm just going to pretend like it didn't and, and go back to living my life. And, and the reporter completely missed what he said. I mean, he, he had it right. We tend to compartmentalize our lives, and we, you don't know everything about me, and I don't know everything about you. And she said, amazing how such a sweet guy could resort to such terror. Every single person is capable of wonderful good. Every person. We're made in the image of God. But if we acknowledge that we are <clears throat> fallen sinful men and women ever since Adam disobeyed God, then we have to acknowledge that evil lurks within us all. I think you would be hard-pressed to find a better man than John Stott. John Stott, uh, this incredible Student of the Word of God, so much so that if you if if you were going to England now, Stott died a couple of years ago. But if you were going to England and and he opened his home for you to come and stay there, you'd hardly see him. You know why? Because all day long he was studying Scripture. I mean, he was just almost eccentric. He he hardly he was not very socially well adapted because he was serving the church. With his study and his writings. Wonderful expositor of the word. Here's what he said when he was talking about the chief figures surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. Quote, Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, and Pilate, the Roman procurator, were not just officers of the church and state fulfilling their official roles. They were fallen and fallible human beings swayed by the dark passions which rule us all. John Stott is identifying with Pilate especially time and again. Even though he was a wicked political man, he understood that Jesus was innocent and, and, and wanted to set him free. But political expediency demanded that he kill Jesus even though he washed his hands. And, and Stott says, you know what? I look at that and I, I see myself. I, I know that I'm just like that. For our motives are always mixed. We may succeed in preserving a modicum of rectitude in performing our public duties. But behind the facade lurk violent and sinful emotions which are always threatening to erupt. 
Look, when you're surprised that someone does something you just can't believe, I'm surprised that you're surprised. We're all capable. It's God's mercy that keeps us from living out the sinful impulses that are in us. Stott's point was that in in the same way that Adam represented all mankind in his state of sin, fallen from God, Caiaphas and Pilate represented us all in putting Jesus to death. Now You're not going to find those exact words in Scripture, but it's true. We all had a hand in nailing Jesus to the cross. He went willingly, but we drove the nails in. So you might think, well, now, isn't that just a tad dramatic? I mean, think about it. All Adam and Eve did was eat the fruit. It's not like they killed anybody. How long did it take for murder? How many generations before murder? I mean, the very first person born of woman, Cain, murdered his brother, Abel. Adam and Eve had hoped that he would be the one. Cain would be the one. I've gotten me a man, she said. And I know she's thinking he's going to be the one to crush the serpent's head. But no. Obviously not Abel, nor Seth, nor Abraham, nor Isaac, nor Jacob. Jacob! What what was the coach's name? It was Playoffs! Playoffs! I mean, that's what I feel like. Jacob, come on, Jacob is in the line. I mean, this is a ridiculously unlikely person to be in the line of the Savior, the line of redemption. Yet he was chosen by God over his older brother, who would have been the natural heir to Isaac's wealth. And he was chosen for the blessings of leader in Abraham's family and blessing. But he wasn't. The Savior. We're well in the, into the message, and it's time for us to think about the text or to, 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 to hear and absorb God's Word. Long text today, and we're not reading all of it Genesis uh, 27 1 all the way through 28 9. But Sean and Melissa Cross are going to come and read for us uh, Genesis 27 1 to 40. This story, and just remain seated, it's a long text, and so you can stay where you are. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I might eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. 
and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon my house and not, be a, ble- and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And when she put the delicious food and the bread, and she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, His father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father, Isaac, said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I Ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, 
Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is quite a story, and we cannot imagine ourselves in such a place. And yet, we find ourselves in such places from time to time. And Lord, there is very little that seems redemptive in this story, and yet you are having your way. You're accomplishing your will in spite of the ways that we act. So Lord, cause us to be humble and submit to the God who will have his way. We're glad that you're in control, not us. Help us as we continue through this story, as we think about our relationship with you and the roles that you have called us to play and how good and blessed it is when we trust you and follow your heart, your will, your word, your ways in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what are we to make of this story? Who's the hero in this story? Just like last week, David did a wonderful job of setting this up. David told us, by the way, uh, in, in staff meeting the other day, that he was really tempted when he talked about how Esau was born red and hairy. You, you remember the analogy that he used? It's like a, a red sweater, you know, Esau's like a red sweater. Said he was really tempted to put a picture of Elmo up on the screen, but and we thanked him for profusely that he didn't. No, I'm just kidding. But he really set the story up, and and there were no heroes then. There are no heroes in this story. Uh, some individuals in the Old Testament point to Jesus, you know, and you say, "Well, that's like Jesus." And you think about Boaz in the story of Ruth. Spurgeon called Jesus our great and glorious Boaz, pointing to Jesus. He's our kinsman redeemer. It's beautiful pictures. Then there are plenty of times in the Old Testament that just point us to our need for a Savior. And then we realize that there is no hope in man, and this is one of those kinds, one of those times. It's funny, though, that we see in all of this story, God is accomplishing His will in spite of the manipulation that the people employ to try to get their own way in the, in the events that occurred. I want to recap this story, uh, then move to the New Testament where the, where the writer of Hebrews helps to put some kind of application to the events of this time and, and good use to our lives. Last week we learned about the strife between Esau and Jacob in Rebekah's womb before they were even born. 
And when Rebecca asked why, the Lord told her that there's going to always be this strife between these two. And the, and the younger is going to prevail. The older will serve the younger. <clears throat> so, in other words, the promise that was made to Abraham that's been passed to Isaac will be passed to the younger of your two sons. The Lord didn't use exactly those words, but once again, Rebecca understood what he meant. And so did Isaac. I mean, as feisty as Rebecca was, do you think that she kept this to herself? I doubt it. I would imagine she, we don't know. I mean, a lot of this is speculation, but, but it seems to, to fall in line. One day you look at this story and you say, well, Rebecca probably never told Jacob. Other times you think, well, yeah, he probably did. John Calvin uh, praised Rebecca for her faith. It's, it, I, I would not. I don't think that that's what Scripture is doing. But it, it's hard to believe that Rebecca kept this to herself. But it didn't matter to, to, to Isaac. He said, you know what? I'm going to pass the blessing of the firstborn to the firstborn. He's going to be the heir. He's going to be the one that carries on this line, this family. It, it, it certainly led him, spurred him to do that when he looked at the difference between the two boys. He liked Esau, and he liked the way Esau lived his life. He didn't particularly care for what Jacob did. He loved the fact that not only could Esau kill the meat, he would grill it, kill the animals. He would prepare the meat beautifully in this stew. And so, in addition to favoring Esau from his heart, tradition called for the blessing to be passed to the firstborn. Now, Isaac would have to understand that he wasn't the firstborn of his father. Didn't matter, though. It's going to Esau. So Isaac fully expected the blessing and promise of Abraham to flow through his oldest son. But Esau was a sensual man satisfying his momentary appetite at the expense of his future. Not only did he sell his birthright for a bowl of soup, but he married women that he knew would irritate his parents. Uh, Whatever else you say about Rebecca, you would not have wanted her for a mother-in-law, I can tell you that. I am sick to death because of these women that Esau married. I'll just die if Jacob marries somebody like them. Now, was Rebecca justified in deceiving her husband since Isaac refused to follow God's stated will? Was Rebecca justified? No, <laughs> she wasn't. I, I don't know about you. I, I can find no way to justify her actions. Well, how would God's will have been accomplished otherwise? If Rebecca hadn't taken matters into her own hands, how would it have been? I don't know, but I do know this. God's will would have been accomplished. If Rebecca had not been part of this deceit, this trickery, God would have accomplished his will anyway. Was God's will accomplished through Rebecca's trickery? Yes, it was. I got nothing on that. I mean, I just, I don't know. Nothing. But I do believe it. But Rebecca's trickery would have meant nothing without 
Jacob's compliance, which he offered, with startling ambition and just bald-faced lies. When he goes before his father and he says, yes, I'm your oldest son. And, 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 and then he says, the Lord your God has blessed me. I mean, it's just like us saying, I'll put my hand on a stack of Bibles and I will say, not only is this true, but that God caused it to be true. When it's an absolute lie. And, and you're doing it to your father. Hard to believe. Jacob's behavior was, in a word, outrageous. And yet, he obtained the Lord's blessing as well as his father's blessing. But the entire family paid a price, a heavy price for their disobedience, which was breathtaking to a person. All four of them. Breathtaking disobedience. When Isaac and Esau discovered Jacob's deceit, there was a great deal of wailing. Now, look, we don't tend to be whalers in our country. When you go to a funeral and you see somebody wailing, do you feel a little bit uncomfortable? In that culture, um, it would have been uncomfortable if you were the one not wailing. I mean, when things went badly, everybody just wailed. They'd throw dust into the air and tear clothes, and it was awful, awful. Well, Jacob, and, excuse me, Isaac and Esau wailed, but they did it from different kinds of perspectives. The Bible says that Isaac was filled with terror. The Hebrew language literally says that he wailed with terror or he, he experienced this terror in his heart about what had happened. And Esau wept bitterly. He wept with great bitterness. No, how could this have happened to me? How could he do this to me? My father, please bless me as well. Bless me. And it could be that at this very moment, Isaac began to do the right thing. Although it was the most painful moment of his life. Probably more painful when it, than when his father had put him on an altar and raised the knife and he was just inches away from his father plunging the knife into his heart. The dagger in Isaac's heart at this moment when he recognized not only what had been done to him but his own sin and allowing this to get to this place was a piercing cut. But it also brought him to his senses. Now look, custom is one thing. But giving giving the inheritance, giving a double portion to the firstborn was not always practiced. Isaac could have said, that sniveling little cheat, there's no way I'm giving. He's getting nothing. Not only do you get two-thirds, you get everything. But he didn't do that. He didn't claim ignorance and say, Jacob gets nothing. In fact, he assigned Esau the place that God had designated for him. Even though his heart must have broken as the words came out of his mouth. A few 
days later when Jacob headed to Padan Aram, although you probably know it as Haran, um, <clears throat> Isaac gave Jacob a proper blessing. The blessing that God had planned for him all along. In fact, let me read this from, from Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Your, your mother will drive me out of my mind if you take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you. And make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be a, become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. That you may take possession of the land of your sojourners that God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away. This blessing was the blessing that was des- designed and designated for Jacob all along. And finally, Isaac gave the proper blessing to his son. Jacob had to move quickly because uh, Esau, Esau's bitterness had turned to murderous rage. It was a controlled rage. He said, I'll wait till my father. In fact, look, when you look at the two boys, Esau was far more respectful to his father than Jacob was. Esau loved his father deeply and had great respect for him and treated him with respect, addressed him with respect. Jacob, horrible son, just not a good son at all for a father. And so Esau was saying, out of respect, I'm going to wait till my father dies. And it was years later before Isaac actually died. But at the moment, it, it looked like it was going to be any moment. And so Jacob had to move quickly. Rebecca moved quickly to protect him. Get him out of here. We've got to get him out of here. So who won in this story? Who won? Nobody. Everyone suffered, even though Jacob received the blessing and the promise given to Abraham. As far as we know, this was the last time Rebecca ever saw Jacob. So she had her way, but do you think she won anything? Rather than just trust God and let him work it out, in spite of Isaac's stubbornness, She sought to manipulate and move things in the right way and lost everything. On his way to the land of exile, God would inexplicably come to Jacob and bless him and say, I will be with you. I am the God of your father Abraham and I will give you this land and your descendants. You will be blessed beyond Measure. It was planned all along, but it just shouldn't have happened this way. Not, not from our perspective. Not from what we can say and do. It shouldn't have happened this way. Now, if you read this story, this episode of God's story, looking for heroes and moral lessons, the only lessons to be learned are, are negative ones, as in don't do this, don't do that. But the need for the Savior is quite prevalent in this story. So it also is the title of this message. Our God is the God who will have his way. We cannot alter his plans no matter what our intentions nor 
our actions. But there are lessons nonetheless, and the writer of Hebrews tells us about some of those lessons, especially in 11.20 and then in 12.15 to 17. 11.20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now look, I, I, I didn't read this from any, any place else. And maybe I'm trying to read into the text. Maybe I'm just trying to, to understand this in a way that makes sense to me. And, and, and you, that's one of the lessons of the day. You can't understand God's ways. They don't make sense to us. But perhaps he's talking about the blessings, the last two blessings. Not the blessing that, that Jacob obtained by deceit. And which he would not have given had it not been obtained in that way. <clears throat> Isaac wouldn't have blessed Jacob that way. But the blessing on Esau, which really was an anti-blessing. He did say, you'll break his yoke in the end. But what Isaac promised to Esau, none of us would want to hear. And then he went on as Jacob was on his way. To find a woman, a particular woman, and he got two for the price of one. <laughs> Actually, two for the price of two, but uh, he was deceived, as we'll see, just like he deceived his dad. But even so, he was blessed rightly at that time. Now, in Hebrews 12, Esau is addressed, or we learn about Esau. See to it, the writer says. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected for he had found no chance to repent. Though we sought it with tears. I don't know how binding that birthright sale was. I don't know if Isaac could have overridden that and said, no, 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 it goes, Esau, that was a stupid move you made. But in God's eyes, it was binding. In a moment, Esau threw it all away. Just in a moment. And, and now when he gets the, the blessing is no longer his either, he, he weeps bitterly, my father, my father, please, but... Nothing. Um, the warning against bitterness points back to Esau, and we're bo- and we're warned not to be bitter when things don't go our way. When things don't go your way, how do you respond? The temptation is for bitterness to start rising up, especially if things are not going our way because other people have intervened to our beautiful little plan and they've, you know, got it derailed. It's easy for bitterness to quickly spring up inside. Esau is also the poster child for those who seem incapable of controlling their passions. I mean, that hits us all at times, whether it be with lust, with money, with anger, with gossip, with food. And the list just goes on and on a long ways. This verse is an admonition to 
to, to, to avoid Esau's ways of, of allowing passions to control us and to fall hard, lean hard and fall hard if necessary on the grace of God. It's in line with the constant reminder of Scripture to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, even when our relationship with the Lord is secure in Jesus. Even so, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Uncontrolled passions and bitterness can ruin our lives, can't they? And though we, we will have the promise of eternal life, just like Isaac and Jacob had, we will pay a significant price for following our own way and trying to make things be in a way that we think would be pleasing to God even, rather than yielding to His will. So let's put this truth in the form of application. Four points points in all. The first is this. Trust in the heart of God. Trust in the heart of God and in his plan for your life is far better when acknowledged sooner rather than later in your life. I mean, Isaac finally got it. But it was well down the road. Not many of us get clear direction for our lives from God early on. I mean, you remember a few weeks ago we talked about God's will. That This screen will come back up, but I want to think about God's will for our lives for just a moment. We talked about God's will of decree. That is, the sovereign God determines every single thing that happens in the universe. That's His will of decree. He decrees things will happen, was Were the events of this past week in God's will of decree? Yes, they were. This is not easy for us. It's it's one of those things that requires great trust. Every single thing that happens is in God's will of decree. His will of desire is what we want to be His will of decree. It's everything that He says in Scripture that tells us how we're to live. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. And everything that goes along with that, all the beatitudes, all of the requirements to trust, all of the requirements to take care of the poor and to do justice, all of those things are, are, are part of God's will of desire. They're best seen in Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. There are things that we don't know about, but the things that we do know about belong to us and to our children. And we are to take those and live the closest way that we possibly can in what God's revealed will is. But the will of direction is the one that everybody wants to know. What do I do? Who who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to live? What kind of job am I supposed to take? Or or field of study do I pursue? It's, It's not in there. It's not in Scripture. We're allowed a great deal of freedom in what we're to do with our lives. But what God's desire for us is, is very specific. And we are called to live in the power of the Spirit, carrying out His will of desire. God doesn't tell us exactly what we're supposed to do. And if we're not careful, we can get in trouble just like Isaac did, following his heart and following tradition. Isaac was into tradition 
primogeniture, if you must know. That was his tradition he was following, which is just the rights of the firstborn inheritance is all that that means. But there are lots of traditional ways of thinking that can get us into trouble. Now, I, I just said a while ago, I'm, I'm conservative politically. You know, I, I, there is a lot about tradition I like. Obviously, you know, when somebody looks at me today and says, oh, you're dressed up today. I'm, I'm not, you know, totally in the tradition. Um, <clears throat> but traditional ways of thinking, uh, uh, doing things just because they've always been done a certain kind of way can get us into trouble or following our heart. How many times do you hear people talk about that with the Lord? Well, I'm just going to go with my heart. Look, your heart, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's evil. Who can know it? Jeremiah tells us, and it can get us into trouble. I don't mean that Tradition in and of itself is, is bad, but, but if we have a set way that, that we're convinced life ought to be, and if we do this, this, and this, then this, and this, and this will be the result, and if it doesn't get, if we don't get the result that we want, then it's got to be somebody else's problem, and I'm just going to work harder and make sure that it happens the way that I want it to. We can start down a path that is just slightly off at the beginning, but as we've talked about a lot, it can be a long ways. When all of a sudden the truth is revealed to us like it was to Isaac. Or when life comes crashing down and, and, and we have set up this incredible structure that is just knocked down in a moment. We can become disappointed to the, to, to the point of disillusionment. And we find ourselves questioning our faith which is not really... It's not about our faith anyway. It's about the promises of God. So when we question our faith, we're, we're really and truly questioning God. I, I, I mean, I understand if, if unbelievers oppose me, but, but I don't get it when my brother or sister in Christ despise me and I need to fix this or at least, very least, set the record straight. Sometimes you just have to stop. And you have to protect your heart against bitterness. And that's not easy. When you pray for a year for employment and nothing, trust God. Whether we put our trust in God's heart and in his plan for us early or late, whenever, whether we acknowledge that he is God and he can do what he wants to in our lives as well as in the world, it's far better if we do it early rather than late. Second, do not choose temporary pleasure over eternal rewards. I, we don't really need to say anything about that, do we? I mean, we all regret losing our, our temper or taking that first drink that led us down a, a, a terrible road or looking at those illicit pictures or losing our temper in a meeting or, or, or on the road, you know, and you, you know, you're just angry with somebody and you say, oh, hello, there's the church, you know, church member there. Our charge is, is to focus our hearts on the eternal and, and, and not be driven by these momentary impulses or desires that are going to pass away. Third, guard against bitterness at all costs or it will cost you. 
and everybody around you dearly. When you hold a grudge against someone, what's your intention? Your desire is to hurt that person in some way, isn't it? But you don't end up hurting them, do you? You end up hurting yourself and everybody around you. And listen, I have been, I, I've been so guilty of this. So guilty. But our friends and our family, they, they don't want to hear us moaning and groaning. Uh, they don't want to have to tiptoe, us, uh, tiptoe around us whenever um, <clears throat> uh, we're brooding. They don't want to be limited in decision-making whenever the people of the institution that offended us comes into play. Well, I better not, you know. But bitterness is an easy decision, isn't it? Because somehow we justify ourselves. We justify what we were doing. We justify, well, we justify the fact that we're God and everybody else just doesn't get it. That it's everybody else's problem, not mine. Bitterness is, in fact, far easier than forgiveness, which is the only alternative to it, legitimate alternative. But it's far more costly than we can imagine. So what do we do when we have yielded to that flush of patternness or that slow burn of bitterness that has overtaken us? Well, that's our last point. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, Repent from the heart over your sin. Your sin that's, that's committed against a holy God. Not, do not respond with worldly regret over the consequences of your sin. Esau was not sorry for his sin. He was sorry for the consequences of his sin. That's tempting, isn't it? That's what we want to be. We want to be sorry For the consequences of our sin. And claim that we were misunderstood. Or or, well you're not whatever. Look if, if anything Isaac repented on the spot. Esau regretted. And tried to make things work in his favor. Even though his sin had cost him dearly. Rather than just repenting from the heart. He regretted. So ask God to overcome the temptation to respond with regret rather than true repentance. In fact, we're back to where we began this morning. Understanding human nature. Begin every day recognizing who you are apart from Christ. Tim Keller said, you should always look at yourself and think, I can't believe I'm a Christian. If, he goes on to say, if you're a Christian, it's a miracle. That's true, isn't it? I mean, if we're Christians, it's a miracle what God has done for us. (laughs) We cannot allow ourselves to think that if we're saved, we're going to be able to handle anything that comes our way. It's crazy. It's a recipe for disaster. Nor... Should we think, how dare you accuse me? How dare you accuse me of evil? Last week, David said not to be like Esau or Jacob in the story. This morning, let's add Isaac and Rebekah. Be like Jesus. 
And of course, you can't just imitate Jesus and be like him. There is that command to imitate Jesus. But the scripture, New Testament is very clear that unless he lives through us, it ain't happening. We can never be like him. That's why the idea that his death was an example is absurd to the nth degree. His death was freely given because his life was freely given in death because we had no hope apart from it. He was the only eligible substitute and sacrifice for us. Let him live through you. When you're crucified with Christ, then his life flows through you as well. Trust God's hand in your life. Because some of you are right now in a place that you never dreamed that you would be. You've been betrayed. Someone you love very dearly has gotten sick and possibly died. Things have not gone at all at work. Somebody deceived the boss and took a position that was rightly yours. And you're just living for the day when he gets his just dues or she finally understands what it's what it's like and that everybody knows that God is on my side, not somebody else's. Don't live like that. Don't live like that. He is the God who will always have his way. And when you trust that, when you say, okay, God, I'm all right with that. Life's better. And it's okay because he's worthy of our worship, our trust, and our submission. Let's pray. Father, um, I can preach this with such knowledge because these things have become so evident in my life, more so at some times than others. And I recognize that, Lord, often I have cried bitterly like Esau rather than repent, like Isaac did. And then do the right thing. Lord, it all stems from a heart that trusts in self rather than you. And I pray, Lord, for your forgiveness and your deliverance from that. And I pray, God, that you would give us hearts of trust. And that Jesus would live through us. Not only in us, but through us. And that we might heed the warnings of the writer of Hebrews and not allow a root of bitterness to spring up in us. But to fall hard on the grace of God. Thank you for that grace, Lord. Thank you for loving us that much, caring for us. Now make us like Jesus as we yield to your will your hand in our lives. And it's in the name of your Son, our Savior, that we pray.